You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, church family, good to see you here this week. Hope you're doing well. If I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway. So grateful you're with us here this week. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn, me, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. There in your New Testament, and uh, we're going to continue in this Advent series that we're in, worthy of our songs, as we look at six classic Christmas carols and investigate uh, kind of the origin of these carols, the theological underpinnings of these characters, car- uh, carols, and why they are worthy of our singing. And we are going to do so today. And as we, as I was preparing for this uh, this text, this message that we're going to be in here today, you know, I. I've been thinking about uh, one of the most popular traditions that has absolutely gone to a whole nother level in the last 20 years with the advent of social media and YouTube is that of baby dedic- or baby announcements and, and uh, gender reveals. Like these things have skyrocketed to a whole nother level. Uh, like when you think about it, uh, what takes place today is a whole nother creative realm. I was thinking about my oldest daughter when we did her baby announcement 20 years ago, like we thought it was really cool and innovative that you could print out a sonogram that on it said, hi, grandmom, and then gave it to grandmom and went, ooh, how cool is that? Or maybe even those that maybe had a second child and you know, the first child shows up wearing the shirt that says, you know, I'm going to be a big brother or a big sister or something like that. And you're like, oh, it's so awesome. But yesterday I was sitting and I was asking my mom, I was at lunch with my 80-year-old mom, and I was asking her, so what was the baby announcement game like when I was born? She's like, baby announcement game? We just called them, said, we got a kid. I was like, that's it? Gosh, It's boring. And I said, well, tell me about my grandmother. Tell me about your mom. What did she do? And this is where, y'all, I ain't making this up. This stuff gets real, real quick. When she said, yeah, I mean, when, when I was born, um, we had a family member have to jump on a horse and go down to the next farm to let them know. I was like, you're kidding me. Like Paul Revere, baby announcement style? Like, and think about that which is all within the realm of a, of a couple of generations. And now today, I mean, we got cannons going off. We got people skeet shooting and hitting skeet with pink or blue coming out of it. We've got drones dropping in little, uh, little color bombs in the backyards. We got all kinds of things. Like the game has changed and no doubt will change uh, in the days ahead. But of all the baby announcements that have ever been given, of all the gender reveals that have ever been done, Nothing holds a candle on the baby announcement we're going to look at today. The goat of all baby announcements is God's announcement of his own son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world. And we're going to see that not only in Luke chapter 2 today, we're going to see this in the particular hymn, the particular Christmas carol that we're looking at today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And we'll give you a little background on this carol. We'll look at the text and then hopefully use this carol to, to, to see some key things that come from this announcement. But 
When it comes to this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, most of us, this is familiar to us because either we've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas or It's a Wonderful Life, and, uh, and the song kind of gets played on repeat there. And yet, its origin comes about 300 years before any of those movies were made. Um, and it comes down to 1739. Uh, the same, uh, same man that wrote the hymn that we looked at last week, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, wrote this one. Charles Wesley wrote this uh, hymn. In fact, when he wrote it, it wasn't even meant to be a hymn. It was a poem. And, and Charles Wesley, by the way, he's a famous theologian, pastor from England. He was the youngest of 18 children. So you want to do the math on those baby announcements. He was the leader of what would become the Methodist movement. And in his lifetime, he would write over 6,000 hymns in his lifetime, many of which have become pillars in Christian hymnals, but maybe none more famous than this one, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And when he first wrote it, again, he didn't write it as a song, he wrote it as a poem. And interestingly enough, the first version that he wrote was entitled, Hark How All the Welkin Rings. Now, there's some interesting, when you get into some of these old words here, anybody know what hark means, by the way? Hark means to listen. It is literally an invitation to the world to hearken, to listen up to the announcement that's being made. That's what hark means. But the original version is hark, how all the welkin rings. What is a welkin? Glad you asked. Welkin is an old English word that literally means vaulted heavens. And the idea was looking at Luke 2 of the announcement of the angelic realm to the shepherds in the fields about unto you a child is born. That announcement, it was listen up, listen to the angels in the vaulted heavens as they ring out with this beautiful announcement. That was the idea of it. And that's what he penned. What happened was, is shortly after, one of Charles Wesley's best friends, his fellow college friend, somebody by the name of George Whitfield, uh, who was another notable preacher at the time, took Wesley's poem and without his permission, changed it and then published it without ever letting Wesley know. And, uh, and he changed it to what we have now, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This ticked Wesley off. Because one, Wesley doesn't like anybody messing with his stuff. Like none of us do. Don't, don't go rewrite my work. Make a new work if you want, but don't rewrite mine. Not only did he do that, but he disagreed with them theologically because he's like, hey, in the text... The angels aren't actually singing. That's not happening. That's why I wrote how the vaulted heavens are ringing out with, with praise, with glory. And you changed it, but it didn't matter at that point because by the time that Whitfield published it, that sucker already took off, already went viral. So no going back at this point. So it's Hark the Herald Angels Sing as we got it now. About 100 years later though, and again, this was a poem. It's never meant to be sung. 100 years later, the famous composer, Felix Mendelssohn, if you've ever heard of Midsummer's Night Dream, would compose a musical cantata as a tribute to the 400th anniversary of the printing press, Gutenberg's printing press, which printed the very first Bible ever. And he wrote a cantata to it in, in celebration. It had no words. It was never intended to be sung. 
However, one of his choir singers heard this tune, a man by the name of William Cummings. He was actually a 16-year-old boy. And he thought, man, that tune would go really well with Wesley's poem, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and it was done. The rest is history after that, become one of the most famous Christmas carols that we sing today. But what's interesting to me in this story If you know anything about Charles Wesley, everything that he writes, all these hymns that he's written, they are dripping with theology. They are rich. Every line, every phrase in this carol that we just got done singing, we'll sing again here in a moment, every aspect of it is loaded with scripture and promises and theological meaning. And he penned this only a year after he started following Jesus Christ. Just a year after the Lord saved him, he penned these words. And what happened was, is he was reading Luke 2. And he wasn't just overwhelmed with the fact that God would send a savior to save sinners. But God would send a savior for me. To save me, this sinner. And so this was his reflection on Luke chapter 2. And so I want to briefly just walk us through this text. Let us see what we need to see, make a few observations. And then I want to use Wesley's hymn to show you five key um, applications that the announcement of Jesus Christ brings for our lives. Um, Three observations that we'll look at here in just a moment. But listen, I'm going to read through this passage here. Starting in verse 8, just hear Linus's voice, not mine right now. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And then suddenly there were with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to the God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Again, three quick observations just want to make from this text. The recipients, the announcement itself, and the response. First, Note the recipients. When you think about a birth announcement and you think about one of this magnitude, notice who the announcement doesn't go to first. We're not talking about royalty here. We're not talking about the announcement going even to the grandparents first. 
that's not here. Of all the people in the world that God would choose to first announce the coming of the Savior into the world, it is these shepherds that are out in the field. Now, shepherds, that term, beautiful, almost romanticized term in scripture, but many of you may know in the first century, it was quite the opposite. It was anything but a good reputation. In fact, they were known for their bad reputation. In Hebrew culture, they were just a a notch above lepers and thieves and tax collectors. They were viewed as deceitful. They were viewed as dishonest. And they weren't even allowed because of that to testify in Jewish court hearings. They were deemed unclean by the priests. And the reason is, is because their job as shepherds was almost 24-7. And so therefore they could not observe ceremonial law. There was no temple services for them. There was no sacrifices being made. There was no mikvahs for ceremonial washing and cleaning. They were deemed unclean. And yet the irony is, when you think about what a shepherd is surrounded by, almost the entirety of their job every single day of every year, sheep. Some of the actual sheep that would be used in the very sacrifices to atone for their sin. So imagine being so close to the means of your forgiveness and yet completely unable to access it. If anyone knew their need for salvation, it was these shepherds. And so given all of that, This is who the first public announcement comes to. What is God saying that he would set it up this way? Not to kings, not to military generals, not to royalty, not again, even to the grandparents, but to despised and rejected sheep herders. The ones who needed it the most yet expected it the least. How encouraging should this be for us? to any who feel they are too far gone from God's grasp, to any who feel that their sins and their rebellion and their mistakes are beyond repair with God, oh, I bring to you good news. A savior has been born. This is encouragement to all of us. And with it comes that announcement. We see that announcement there. Uh, Primarily, we see it in verse 10 and following When the angel did see, I bring you good news of great joy. That term good news we know is the word gospel that we use. It is the good news that is given of great joy that a, and notice he uses three titles for Jesus. A savior is born who is Christ the Lord. A savior is a play on words with the name Jesus. One who will save you from your sins. Christ is the the uh, messianic term of Messiah, the anointed one who is promised in the Old Testament and who has now come. And Lord is speaking to the promise-making and promise-keeping God who has fulfilled his vows to his people in bringing this Savior. Emmanuel is here. The Messiah has come. Our rescue is in play and no more waiting now. But notice again in the passage, maybe the most important words in this whole passage are two words. There's a lot of two-word phrases in the scriptures that are deeply meaningful. Think about Exodus 14, when God just tells Israel to be still. Powerful two words. Think about in John 11, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, two words, powerful. 
We know, of course, Ephesians 2, but God, but God, but maybe none more powerful than these two words that we see there in verse 11, as well as in verse 12, for you, for you, you shepherds who are despised, rejected, unclean, of disrepute, whose access has been cut off, this savior is for you. And honestly, I know there are, well, all of us in this room, but I know there are some in particular, you need to hear those words tonight. You need to hear that the savior of the world just didn't come to take away the world's sins, came away to take your sin. Savior who came not just to save the peoples, but to save you. This gospel, this good news, it is for you. It is for you. You need to hear that. You can imagine how these shepherds felt in this moment. And then there come the responses. So when an announcement is like this is made to the recipients that it comes to, we're going to see five different responses that are here, five different people and how they response or characters here. The first are the angels and you see them and their response in verse 13 and 14. And it is that of worship. It is worship. They're praising God. They're, they're saying glory to God in the highest. And remember, these are spirit beings who are neither, they neither need nor are they receiving salvation. And yet, this whole angelic realm shows up rejoicing over this announcement simply because of the salvation that we're getting in Jesus. I mean, if, if spirit beings are rejoicing this much over a salvation that doesn't even apply to them, how much more should you and I respond in worship who are the recipients of that salvation? And not only that, not only the angels, but you see the shepherds, their response is not immediately just that of worship. It was immediately that of witness. You see that in verse 17. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They quickly leave their sheep, which what are you doing leaving your sheep? That's your livelihood. That's your commodity you've been with. You're responsible here, without which you don't have a job. You're a dead man walking. They don't even care. They immediately leave their sheep and they head to where this manger is. And the first thing that they want to do is tell others of the great announcement that they have heard. And then there's the response of everyone who received that news there in verse 18. It's not just that of worship and witness, it's that of wonder. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But maybe most beautifully is that of Mary in verse 19, if you're looking for another W word, we'll just call it wealth. And Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. When Mary contemplated of some of the most beautiful, costly, expensive treasures in all the world that one could tuck away in their heart, none compared to the treasure that God had sent her a savior to save her from her sins. And she, she treasured up that wealth in her heart. And then lastly, we return back to the shepherds in verse 20, and there's just mirrors and bookends that of the angelic realm, and is that of worship. They returned, they left that scene glorifying and praising God. New life always results in worship.
And so you see the recipients, the announcement, the responses here. And the question for us now is, what exactly did Jesus come to do? What is it about this announcement that is so special that it would elicit such a response from each one of these people? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is where I think Wesley helps us here. Wesley contemplating on this moment in Luke chapter two and also understanding now the full counsel of God's word begins to pen out in this poem five verses in this. Five verses that are gonna speak to us five primary things that you and I receive as the result of this announcement being heralded that a savior has come into the world. And I want to go through Wesley's verses and show you where they are primarily this each point here in scripture. The first thing that he tells us here, that he shows us here, that Christ's announcement is meant to bring reconciliation between God and man. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. The first thing that Wesley draws our attention to in this very first verse of this hymn is the reconciling work that Christ has come to make between a holy God and a sinful people. You know, we love to use the phrase this time of year, Jesus is the reason for the season, but that's actually not the most fitting truth here. The most fitting truth is that sin is the reason for the season. Our sin is what necessitated this birth announcement. It was our sin and rebellion in Adam in Genesis chapter three that separated every human being from God, leaving us unable to repair that relationship on our own. Because of sin, we could not enter into the holy presence of God. The chasm was too deep and unbridgeable. And yet, this necessitated the very fact that God would need to send a savior who is like us in human form, but who was unlike us and that he was without sin, who could live the righteous life that the law demanded that we had fallen short in, but who could also satisfy the payment that sin demanded, which was death, and to do so in our place. And that is why his dying on a cross, his shedding his blood for us, became that payment for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled back to God, to have that justice appeased and that relationship reconciled. Paul speaks to this when he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. What this means for you, what this means for me, is that in Christ, there is forgiveness. This announcement is declaring 
the only way possible for you to be made right with God has now come into the world. And he will live the life you couldn't and die the death you deserved so that you can be forgiven, so that that relationship can be reconciled once and for all. You don't have to perform in order to earn this. He has come to perform on your behalf. And this is a promise, not even just for you, this is a promise for all the nations that we would turn towards Jesus. And so fittingly, he ends that first verse that we would join the angels by giving glory to our newborn king for bringing the good news of reconciliation. But it doesn't just stop there. Secondly, Christ also brings with him God's incarnate presence with us. We see in the second verse of Hark the Herald, Christ, my highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. This is Wesley trying to get his head around the angel's announcement that Jesus Christ, being fully God, the second member of the triune God, fully exalted as full deity in the heavenly realm, and yet late in time, in the fullness of time, when it was just right, he enters into our humanity through a divinely conceived virgin birth in order to take on human flesh so that not only he could come and save us, but that once again, for the first time since Genesis 3, that God could be with us. He could dwell. He could make his tabernacle once again with his people. And not only Wesley, John the apostle, he could never get over this either. John chapter one, verse one and 14. In the beginning was the word, that is Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What this means for you and I is that God did the impossible in order to be with us. There was no expense too costly for God to find a way to be near to us and to tabernacle once again with us, with his presence. Now, even though Christ has now ascended bodily, is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning in the heavens, he has assured us of two things, that number one, he will return again. And the day will come where God will re-erect his tabernacle, not made of brick and mortar, but the very presence of God himself dwelling on earth with his people. It will happen. But in the meantime, he has sent his spirit to tabernacle within us. Even Jesus spoke to this in John chapter 14 when he said, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So you are not alone. So your faith is in Jesus Christ and you have been dwelt with the Holy Spirit. You are never outside of the presence of God. He is with you. He is in you. You are never without power. You are never without comfort. You are never without hope. You are never without his presence. He has not forsaken nor abandoned you. He is with you. It's one of the beauties of this announcement. So glory to the newborn king who has taken on human flesh to be our Emmanuel, God with us. But not just that. Thirdly, Wesley also brings out the fact that Christ's announcement means that there is a defeat to death and there is the ushering in of life. It says in the third verse, Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, listen to this, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. The whole purpose of Jesus even coming and being born into our world was for the very purpose of him dying on that cross. So that in his subsequent and 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 conquering resurrection, we could receive new life in him. Hebrews 2 speaks to the power of death being unseated. Hebrews chapter 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So his death, Jesus' death on the cross has actually conquered death. He has nailed it in that cross, the penalty for our sins, which was death. But Jesus didn't stay there. And in fact, Peter speaks now to the beauty of the resurrection and our new birth that comes in it. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What this means for you and what it means for me is that you don't have to fear death. You don't have to worry if your faith is in Jesus Christ about what's on the other side. You don't have to worry about judgment for your sins because it's already been nailed and taken care of at the cross. And you have been born anew in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful truths for us to hold on to. Now, these first three verses, by the way, these are traditionally what are sung in the modern contemporary versions of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know, it's not in most versions, the last two verses. You know why? Number one, because they don't rhyme real well. But number two... Whereas the first three verses are primarily speaking to the implications of our justification in Christ's coming. That's a big fancy word that means our being declared righteous through Christ 
coming into this world, dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead three days later. His triumph has, is what has brought reconciliation. It's brought new life. It's brought salvation for those who will put their trust in Jesus and repent of their sin and turn from their own works of righteousness and turn to the righteousness that is only found in Christ. That's that, what that's speaking of. But the last two verses are precious. And that's why we're going to sing all five verses, baby. All right? So hold on to it. Because the last two are pointing us not to just the justification that Christ brings, but also the sanctification. The sanctification, another fancy word that means to be set apart. You see, Wesley, as he looks upon Luke chapter two, understands that Christ coming into the world was more than just getting hell insurance for us. It actually representing the power of Christ to transform our lives from one degree of glory to another, from not just death to life, but from the likeness of our flesh and of sin now into the image of Jesus Christ so that by the time we put our faith in Jesus to the time that he calls us home or returns, we will look more like Jesus than when this thing started. And Wesley doesn't want to miss that. And so he he drills down here. What we see in the fourth verse is the beauty of Christ's work now giving us a new nature. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power. Ruined nature, now restore. Now in mystic union, join thine to ours and ours to thine. Though God had made mankind in his image, without sin, perfect and good in every way at the outset of creation, sin is what marred his design and corrupted our natures. Ever since sin entered into the world, Satan has been in collusion with our sinful nature, seeking to lead us away from God. And yet in the midst of the cursing and the judgment for our sin, there is a promise. There is a promise that one day God would send through the offspring of the woman, a deliverer who would come, who would defeat the very work and the power of Satan at war within us by crushing his head, yet in doing so, in the process, would actually bruise his own heel. In the angelic announcement of Jesus as our Savior and our Messiah is the announcement that the serpent crusher is here. He has arrived because through his work on the cross, both sin and Satan's power will be defeated. And so the plea in this hymn is for Jesus to continue to defeat Satan's work in us, that is by the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming our old sinful natures and sinful desires and now regenerating our hearts and transforming our natures and our desires into the image of Christ. And that's what Paul speaks to in Romans chapter six. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that it would be done away with so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And he goes on, but rather enslaved to Christ. 
This is the beauty of what Christ has done. We studied this in Romans a couple of years ago. The idea of, of Christ through his work grabbing us out of sin country in which we were enslaved to King's sin, to death and to fear, and yet transferring us by adoption into a new country called Graceland with a new king who's not Elvis, but King Grace who rules and reigns over us and now has enslaved us to love and to life. It is a transfer of kingdoms. It is a new nature being birthed within us. And in conjunction with that, the fifth and final verse of this hymn now speaks to the restoration of all things through a new and better Adam that has come into the earth. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain. Thee, the life, the inner man. O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. And again, we're told in Genesis when God first made his creation, everything was good, including mankind, you and I, who are made in his image. But when Adam sinned, and he was our federal head who represented all of the human race, when he sinned, that meant that everyone who would come after him would be made in his image, in the likeness of his nature. That means... That means everyone forwards. That means the idea that when you and I are born in this world, sin is not just something we do. Sin is a nature we are born with that represents the likeness of our father, Adam, in his sin. And it's corrupted everything. And yet, even in that, there was that promise that one day the hope would come of a new Adam, a better Adam, who would both regain and re-imprint all that has been lost and distorted into the likeness of himself. And yet we see that when Paul speaks to this in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And Paul likewise says to the Colossian church, do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. What this means for you, what this means for me is that you can be made new. No matter your past, no matter your sins, your rebellion, no matter your mistakes, no matter how far you think you've run, you are not beyond God's reach. And he, and only he, has the ability to do what nothing on else on earth can, and that is actually change a human heart and make it and, and rebirth it into the image of himself. It means your past doesn't have to define you. Your, your reality of being in Christ is what does. Y'all, do you see why Luke 2 
is the goat of all birth announcements. I don't care what kind of kid you've had or you are, it don't compare to what this kid brought into the world. It's the greatest of all announcements because with Christ's birth comes salvation, reconciliation, restoration of all those who will put their trust in him. That's why each one of us who have tasted of that grace can join with the angels and say in constant refrain, as is all throughout this hymn, glory to the newborn king who's done this. And do you know the major difference between our birth announcements and God's? Our birth announcement is given once and then we move on. This birth announcement has been heralded for the last 2,000 years and will never stop being heralded until he returns. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.